0: The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Rev. Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here's Rev. Dr. Scott Black Johnston. This winter, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church is taking five weeks to explore the nature of Beloved Community. The term Beloved Community first appeared in the writings of Harvard philosopher Josiah Royce in the early 1900s, but it was 50 years later when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. introduced the topic to a wider audience that it really came on most people's radar screen, he included the topic of the beloved community in his preaching and writing with great frequency. In fact, King identified beloved community as the goal of the civil rights movement. It was a sacred and King believed achievable reality, a world in which people would gather together in love, embrace truth, and focus their life's energies on ensuring that all of God's children would have opportunities to thrive. Your clergy have selected Beloved Community as the focus of this year's Winter Sermon Series. Why this topic now? Well, as you all know, 2024 is a presidential election year, and we are all so excited for what lies ahead. One of the painful ironies at the heart of American democracy is that Presidential elections, instead of knitting the fabric of our country together, frequently accomplish the exact opposite. They increase discord and division. So even though we're 10 months away from a vote, most of us can already imagine how 2024 is going to unfold. Venomous speech on the part of candidates and their supporters and surrogates will stir up anger. These frustration-inducing, fear-provoking messages will be amplified by social media. People's dissatisfaction, paranoia, and anxiety will bubble over at various points. The ties that bind will fray. Are these sorts of political patterns anything new? Well, I think it's worth noting on the cusp of this election cycle that politicians in this country and the world over have always engaged in caustic, untruthful, fear-mongering. Over the last 20 years, however, three factors have added juice to the destructive power of this Rhetoric. On the tech side of things, we now have anger-inducing algorithms that profit off our clicks and fan the fa- flames of corporate fury. In terms of international hijinks, we now have to worry about foreign trolls who seek advantage for their nations by sneakily encouraging Americans to fight with each other. And finally, there's our growing sense that the high stakes of this moment mean there's no such thing anymore as fighting dirty to ensure needed victory. These three factors combined have seeded a tidal wave of bad behavior. How bad? Well, this past week, New York Times political correspondent Maggie Haberman observed Politics is now defined, defined, by who you hate and by who hates you back. As citizens and as people of faith, the brewing storm of political hate out there ought to concern us. Why? Well, let's start with the obvious. On a local level, our country's divisive politics is tearing apart families, bowling leagues, book groups, and even churches. Add to this an often ignored truth. Not to put too fine a point on it, but no one is winning, (laughs) right? The anger, the fear, the hatred being leveraged with demonic glee is not moving the needle. It's not passing legislation. It's not helping us address any number of critically important issues. We are stuck in a mud fight that never seems to end. This winter, In the face of what promises to be an especially unsavory political season, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church is going to explore an alternative path, a Christian way forward. We believe that Dr. King was right. We all need to participate in and nurture communities that gather around truth, that honor differences and that engage in concrete efforts to bend this world toward justice. This vision has its roots in our faith. As a matter of fact, our tradition is is eager to resource us. There are blueprints in the good book for creating and maintaining Beloved Community. And that, my friends, is where we're heading. Over the next month, alongside King's writings on Beloved Community, we're going to focus on the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. In in this letter, the Apostle writes to a community of people who are new to the faith. And and as such, Paul is trying to describe the rules, the the table manners, the, the ethical norms that shape Christian community. Along the way, Paul addresses basic questions like, what is community for? How should I behave here? Do I need to give up my individuality to be part of this group? In today's passage, Paul digs into a question that every neighborhood, every school district, and yes, every nation seeking to elect a leader must answer How can diverse people be united? Where can people of different backgrounds and perspectives, hopes, and worries find unity, find common purpose? Let's listen together to the Apostle's answer, as it's found in Romans chapter 12, beginning with the third verse. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body In Christ and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So let's begin our consideration of beloved community by looking today at the foundation of beloved community. In coming weeks, we're going to look at the characteristics and challenges faced by beloved community. But let's begin today with a spin down American history lane. In 1776, an artist born in Geneva, Switzerland, a man named Pierre du Cimetier was placed on a committee that was tasked with designing a seal for his newly formed country, the United States of America. To brand the new country, Ducimetier suggested the addition of a national motto. A- and he had one in mind. Ducimetier proposed the Latin phrase e pluribus unum. Out of many, one. E pluribus unum stuck. The words were endorsed by Congress in 1782. They were added and remain to this day as part of the official seal of the United States, the seal of the President of the United States, the seal of the House of Representatives, the seal of the United States Senate, and the seal of the Supreme Court of the United States, e pluribus unum, on all those places. E pluribus unum is featured in every American passport, and on every bill and coin in our currency. Sometimes you have to look to find it, but it's always there, out of many, one. As far as mottos go, Ducimetier's pick was a bold one. It cast a vision in which 13 different states, home to people from so many different backgrounds and birthlands, would commit to a common purpose, the establishment of a new nation founded on the principles of equality, opportunity, and justice for all. Now many will observe correctly that over the last 248 years, our country has often strayed from the noble path charted by this motto. Our loftiest standards have been undercut by discriminatory practices, moral failures, and even a civil war. Still, we print e pluribus unum on our national seal, it's it's aspirational. It, It exposes our country's failures and at the same time it calls us to do better, to strive for something difficult and dare I say it, glorious. As many and diverse and quarrelsome as we are, e pluribus unum, challenges our hearts to embrace a higher purpose, to strive together to build a better world. Now, where did all this inspiration come from? Did Pierre du Cimetier get lucky and just strike motivational gold back in 1776? Actually, no. Ducimetier borrowed the phrase from the cover of a popular English publication, The Gentleman's Magazine, A Monthly Intelligencer. Every month, The Gentleman's Magazine collected articles and news items from different authors and assembled them into a must read folio. Many authors, one magazine. E Pluribus Unum. Now, where did the Gentleman's Magazine of London get this phrase? Well, that's where things get really interesting. According to historians, the magazine borrowed the phrase from the writings of St. Augustine, the 4th century African bishop. And to chase that ball even further down history's back streets, scholars argue that Augustine took the phrase from Cicero. And before that, Cicero borrowed it from the mathematician Pythagoras. That's right, the A squared plus B squared equals C squared guy. Curiously, these ancient notable figures all use e pluribus unum in a similar way. Pythagoras, Cicero, and Augustine all argue that the foundational building block of community, of all healthy community is loving friendship. Listen to how Cicero puts it in an essay that he he wrote to his son about the nature of citizenship. This is what Cicero says. When each person loves the other as much as the self, it makes one out of many. E pluribus unum. I find it fascinating that... That as America was being formed, our founders expressed the belief that the entire project forging a new nation out of a quarrelsome collection of states and people depended on love and friendship. I say this, of course, because these same principles, love and friendship, were central to the ministry of Jesus. And as such, they form the cornerstone of the ethic pursued by early Christian communities. Scripture provides numerous examples of this emphasis. In the big prayer that Jesus offers in the Gospel of John, right before his passion, he prays for the unity of his followers. He prays over and over to God that God would help the friends whom he loves be one. In in Paul's letters to to early churches, the apostle regularly lists all the categories that people in the ancient world saw as unbreachable divides. The meat-eaters versus the vegetarians, Jews versus Greeks, slaves versus free, women versus men. And after listing these divisions, Paul always says the same thing to the faithful, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul's claim here is is basic Christianity, but does a message of unity, this, this loving unity that scripture holds up, have a chance at being heard in today's world. Imagine standing out here at the corner of 55th and 5th, screaming at passers-by. You are all one, (laughs) you Michigan fans, and you who live and die with the crimson tide, you MAGA Republicans, and you never Trumpers, you riding with Biden folk, and you people who want to cast a ballot for Cornell West, you tree huggers and you drill baby drillers you are all one e pluribus unum this is so obviously not true (laughs) it's a pipe dream soapbox nuttiness except (laughs) except that this is exactly what jesus does all the time it's what paul does and it's what The church has professed to the world for centuries. We are a bunch of folk who totally disagree with each other, but who have been brought together, not because we've suddenly learned to agree, but because we have been loved by God. Look at the disciples. Look at the people Jesus taps to do ministry with. They don't agree on anything. They don't agree on who Jesus is, on how Jesus is supposed to behave, on who Jesus ought to hang out with, on whether Jesus ought to fight the Romans or eat dinner with sinners. And they certainly don't agree on what Christ's end game ought to look like. Everyone for betrayal, trial, crucifixion, please raise your hand. Look closely at the 12. Matthew is a tax collector. Simon is a zealot, a fellow who hates tax collectors. Typically, these two dudes would spend their days conspiring to kill each other, I'm serious. Instead, along with the rest of the ragtag crew, they spend their days following Jesus. They ate meals with Jesus. They fall asleep every night with their souls wrapped up in the stories told by Jesus in the vision that Christ casts of a very different world. Do you see where all this is going? What binds the disciples together is not political agreement, it's love. It's being surrounded by, embraced by, shaped by God's love. Paul runs down the road with the same torch again and again. The apostle remarks on how different people in early Christian communities are. Look at us, he says. We have different status, different citizenship, different eating patterns, different genders. In today's passage he says we have different skill sets, different interests, different strengths. What is it that's holding us together? And then he delivers his consistent answer. We who are many are one body in Christ. Does Paul's answer work? I mean, in this crazy, diverse, frequently violent and ugly world, which may or may not be any more crazy, diverse, frequently violent and ugly than Rome was in the first century. In this world, does it work to say, to believe, to act as if it's the most important thing, the foundational thing, the compass that guides your every step, the bedrock for your morality, your ethics, your citizenship, and even your politics? Does it make sense? to say that the foundation of all that is the love of God. Do you know what I think? What I really think? I think that most of the time the only people who really, really believe this stuff are the people we call saints. It's the St. Paul's and the St. Francis's, the Mother Teresa's, the Martin Luther King's, who really go all in on love. The saints figure, what do I have to lose? My life, maybe, but, but not my soul. And then they push their chips to the center of the table and declare, I'm betting it all, all of it on love. The rest of us conclude that that approach is Too risky. We hedge our bets. (laughs) We're not at all sure, given all the vitriol and fear out there that love is the best play. Martin Luther King heard that critique a lot. He heard it from within and without his own movement. In 1957, a reporter from Ebony Magazine challenged King to fight fire with fire, because the reporter argued love is impractical. King responded with these words. The aftermath of the fight fire with fire method, which you suggest, is bitterness and chaos. The aftermath of the love method is reconciliation and the creation of beloved community. Physical force, King went on, can repress, restrain, coerce, destroy, but it cannot create and organize anything permanent. Only love can do that. Yes, love, which means understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill, even for one's enemies is the solution. When we love one another, Cicero wrote to his son, we transcend our differences and become something more. Ex pluribus unum. As we head deeper and deeper into this election year, I wonder if people of faith in this country will choose a different path than the one blazed by political acrimony. I wonder if we can risk stretching out our arms and embracing the challenge that is etched in every coin of the realm. The challenge modeled in the lives of the saints, the challenge that calls us to see beyond the present nastiness to a vision for beloved community. It's a vision, of course, first spun for us by the son of a carpenter, a teacher who invited folk who had every reason to hate each other over for dinner. a host who formed a community out of a motley crew of broken souls by calling them friends and by passing around the table platter after platter brimming with love, challenging, life-changing love. So, This past week, our brilliant associate director of communications, Vashina, took thousands of photographs of all of you and of our extended family online and crafted them into one image. If you look closely, you may find yourself on the bulletin cover today, out of many, one. Friends of God, have courage in this time. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord, amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.